1: To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, I'm talking to Miriam Taves about her devastating new novel, Women Talking. Miriam Taves is the author of six best-selling novels, Summer of My Amazing Luck, A Boy of Good Breeding, A Complicated Kindness, The Flying Troutmans, Irma Voth, and All My Puny Sorrows, which you may remember we talked about a few years ago when it was up for the welcome prize, and one work of non-fiction, Swing Low, A Life. She is a winner of the Governor General's Award for Fiction, the Libris Award for Fiction Book of the Year, the Rogers Writers' Trust Fiction Prize, and the Writers' Trust Marian Engel Timothy Findley Award. And Miriam's latest novel is Women Talking. Miriam, welcome back to Little Atoms.
0: Thank you. Good to be back.
1: So, I want to ask you what the inspiration for this book was, but I don't think inspiration is really the right word mm. in this context.
0: Mm, that's true. Uh, what would be the right word? Well, I, I heard about these crimes that occurred on the Manitoba colony in Bolivia. And uh, this is a, a, an ultra conservative, old order, uh, mennonite colony, very remote, and and um, between so between 2005 and 2009, women were being raped, attacked. First of all, they were being made unconscious with some kind of drug, and and then and then raped in their beds while they were while they were knocked out. So they started eventually. They started talking to each other about what was going on and what was happening to them. Um, you know, waking up with. Uh, in pain and groggy and obviously being, having been violated and the elders in the community, the male elders and the bishop, all men, dismissed their claims, their stories and said that they were uh, making them up possibly, that this was some kind of wild female imagination was something that I saw quoted. and. and um, or that demons or satan were uh, punishing them for their for their sins so and this is the type of this this was the narrative around these attacks until one woman stayed up and um and stayed awake uh, night after night and eventually uh caught one of these men they turned out to be local men mennonites from the from the colony and not demons and um and caught the one guy, and then, um, you know, he turned in a whole bunch of others, eight men in total. So my book is is an imagined response to those attacks. I've put eight women, uh, two families, three different generations, uh, who have sort of been appointed by the other women in the colony to talk about, to have meetings, to discuss what will happen now, what will they do, how will they live, how will they go on, how will they keep their faith, how will they trust. Uh, How will they protect their children? And so the the entire book, really, the the content of the book is these women talking about their choices, about whether they should leave, stay and fight, uh, or do nothing.
1: And this is all taking place after these attacks. So the attacks are not... Described really at all in in the book. So was that a conscious decision?
0: It was a conscious decision. I think that um, the the attacks are uh, what what we know of them. Um, what happened? There there are some details that are already online, and and uh, and there there was no reason to we can we we can imagine what these uh, what these attacks entailed and the trauma that um, was inflicted on these women, and and um, so I, I really wanted to get to a place of you know to begin the book with a place of. Possible healing or at least uh, reaction to them to the crimes.
1: And so how did this story in Bolivia play out? What happened?
0: In Bolivia, as far as I know and there isn't a lot written about it, but um, these are closed colonies where it's, it's difficult to, to go in and... and um, what happened was that the uh, at first the the decision that the bishop of the colony had made w- was to uh, basically lock these men up in a in a feed uh, grain bin or, or, or some kind of farm building uh, for you know for for many many years. This kind of preposterous absurd notion and uh, and thereby keep you know keep the people in the colony the women and girls safe. There, there were men from, you know, fathers, husbands, and brothers, etc., and the women themselves, who, you know, who wanted, to, wanted revenge, wanted to, you know, w- th- these men's lives are in danger, basically. Um, and, and after these attacks, people are angry, obviously. And, and so, from what I understand, the bishop of the colony called in the police, and the, Boliv- the Bolivian police, uh, to, to come and investigate, to arrest the men and to take them away, um put them in, put them in jail. But that was done uh, basically to protect these men, you know, with, with no real regard in terms of protecting the women. Uh, so, and these colonies are self-policed, as it were, and um, so this was a, a first, you know, a real rare and unusual um, situation with the cops coming in. And then there was a trial, uh, the women who live in these colonies weren't able to testify at their own their husbands, fathers, etc, testified on their behalf. The women don't speak the language of the country that they're in. they're, they're barely literate or not or illiterate entirely, and um, the language that they do speak is an unwritten language. Um, they don't leave the colony without male accompaniment. They're basically essentially, prisoners in in these colonies.
1: And the other thing that struck me is it's sort of beholden on these women to forgive these men for these mm-hmm. crimes otherwise
0: mm-hmm.
1: those women themselves will not reach the kingdom of heaven.
0: That's right. That was the thinking and that is the thinking in 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 the in these ultra conservative Mennonite um, communities that uh, that the women would be expected to forgive the men uh, whether they asked for forgiveness or not it was the women's uh, responsibility to to forgive them otherwise they would be uh, excommunicated, kicked out of the colony, and also, essentially, uh, jeopardized their, their eternity in, in heaven, you know, according to their, to their religious thinking.
1: So you grew up on a Mennonite colony in mm-hmm. Canada that was descended from the, the, the same mm-hmm. you know the original branch was in the Ukraine yeah. as this Bolivian one
0: Yeah it was the same yeah it was the same group of Mennonites from the from Malachna the Malachna area and what was the Ukraine at that at that time uh, I grew up in the first in this first Russian Mennonite settlement in Canada very conservative but it wasn't technically a colony uh, it was a it was a village it was a <laughs> settlement um, and then became a town etc but it was very very conservative fundamentalist you know patriarchal community but it was different there's so many different ways of being Mennonite, and, and these colonies the people that kind of broke away from this settlement that i grew up in this town moved to places like mexico and belize and paraguay and bolivia in the 20s and the 50s kind of a constant migration uh, as they attempted to find a place where they would be able to practice their their religion and to be free
1: and is practice. that i guess so they can practice it in more and more extreme
0: forms, I guess. In more and more extreme forms, and um, and not all the colonies, I should add, are that ultra-conservative. There are colonies, and I've spent time in them, where they, where, the, where the colonists are allowed to uh, drive cars and uh, where there is some electricity, for instance. But in this Manitoba colony in Bolivia, it's, it's called the Manitoba colony after the province of Manitoba, where I'm from and where they came from. That there is no electricity. Uh, the houses are all very isolated, dark. Uh, there, there's a lot of distance that separates them. Uh, they're farms. Um, they they use horse and buggies and and no uh, you know modern farming equipment. So it's very, you know, it's a very kind of uh, medieval type of existence. So this almost seems
1: like a stupid question. Why did you want to tackle this subject in the book?
0: Mm-hmm. I mean. When I heard about these crimes, I was horrified like everybody else and uh, and I had many questions and, um, and and it made me think again about these about these communities and and, and the community that I grew up in. Um, where you know in this in this culture of control, really, you know, uh, they're, they're patriarchal communities, they're authoritarian communities, they're fundamentalist communities, and for girls and women in these types of communities, it's it's it, it, there there's there's no voice, they're silenced, their their role is to serve, and uh, to serve the men, and so when these types of crimes and other lesser crimes. Occur. Uh, there's no. There's no recourse for them. There's nowhere for them to go. No. And, you, you know. And as was the case in the Manitoba colony in Bolivia, when they started talking about them, you know, they were told that they were that they were crazy or that they were just being punished by the devil. Um, so. And it made me, and I, and I, and I remembered, and you know what it what it was like growing up, and and um, and knowing how the girls and the women uh, were silenced, and how you know men made made the rules, and um, and then and then the the, the interpretation of the of these rules, you, you know, sort of with using the Bible as the context, women submit to your husbands, children submit to your fathers, um, and that kind of thinking, over time, and when it's enforced. Um, and you're in an isolated, remote part of the world with no experience outside of the world, or very little, certainly for the women, very little, if any, I can see how, I'm not surprised that, that these crimes happen. That sort of chipping away at the, really, at the, at the humanity uh, of the people um, you know the sort of dehumanizing certainly of the of the, of the women and uh, and how that could lead to to a kind of entitlement a, you know a male entitlement they could use and, and abuse the, the the female the, the bodies as, as as they wished and get away with it I, I heard I read one piece uh, somewhere I'm not entirely sure where I read it um, possibly in time magazine that uh, during the trial, which was covered, I think, by some Bolivian media as well, uh, that the men that the Mennonite men captured, who were uh, w- w- the rapists, were, were smirking and, and, and kind of nodding off and laughing, you know, during during the trial. Like, it was something that they couldn't comprehend as something serious, as something that they had done, something that they had, um, you know, an act, a criminal act perpetrated against these women. They couldn't, they, they didn't understand that.
1: And I was, I was gonna ask if, this Bolivian incident was a sort of aberration that came out of, you know, living in such a cloistered society. But actually, I think that's the wrong question. I think that lets the rest of us off, because mm-hmm. actually, this is an extreme manif- manifestation of the culture, the patriarchal culture that we all live in. Isn't
0: mm-hmm. it? Absolutely. I mean, these types of things, you know, the, the women being attacked, raped, assaulted, uh, made unconscious with drugs, and uh, it, uh, that, uh, that's happening Everywhere, how it happened, and how the women were um, treated, and you know the, the sort of events surrounding these attacks in the Bolivia colony, I think, are specific to that kind of. But it, but again, I mean, women are, are aren't believed, you know, even you know in big cities, liberal, educated, enlightened, you know, people who, that we assume we are. But so it. You know, there are specific, I think, conditions. Absolutely, authoritarianism, um, the patriarchy, patriarchal culture, that culture of control, and then and shame and guilt and silence. But then, especially the fundamentalism, the, the 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 way that the the Bible and that religion is used to to suppress and oppress.
1: And there are discussions had in the book around you know, whether what to do if the women leave or don't leave, whether or not it's the women's responsibility to re-educate the men, the children, to bring them up in a different way. And again, these are conversations that we're having Mm -hmm. in the wider culture as well. Now, obviously, you know, this is an idea that's been gestating with you for a while and, and, you know, books take a long time to come to fruition, but obviously we're in this sort of like me too moment now. Mm -hmm. This is a conversation that we're having I mean, there are obviously these resonances in the, in the real world in the book.
0: Mm-hmm, absolutely, it is. And, and um, I finished the book before the, the Me Too movement started. But of course, um, the, the idea, the, the, the sort of general broad idea of, of women start beginning to talk about our... Our experiences um, and vis a vis the men, and you know, in, in our in our towns and cities and communities, has been happening all along. And so now that the Me Too movement has started, I mean, this is a, this is a great thing, and and hopefully it will lead to some some actual uh, change and some actual you know education and, and re-education and some healing. But but um, and my book is just one tiny tiny you know part of that larger conversation for sure um, but yeah I mean it is something the choices like you say you know what are, I mean okay so we, we can admit and we can or, or not admit but we can talk about you know the things that have happened to us um, and, and then where do we go and, and what do we do you know what do we do with that with that experience and with that knowledge and, and how do we and for the in the case of my my women in the loft talking you know my Mennonite women their their choices are made within the context of their faith as well and in the context of the or, or the, or the lack thereof of their experience in, in, in the outside world. So those are sort of exceptional circumstances. But essentially, yeah, it's the same conversation that women are having everywhere.
1: Listen to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Miriam Taves. We're talking about her latest novel, Women Talking. And Miriam, I want to, in the second part, talk a bit more about some of the characters in the actual novel. To get us in today, you've already mentioned, we've already talked about how the the structure of the novel is um, these women, two families, two multi generational families, um, meeting in a loft to discuss what they're going to do after these incidents have happened all the men are away um, basically to bail out the, the people that have committed the attacks in the city um tell me again about this this structure they're basically like socratic dialogues mm-hmm. uh, between these women
0: mm-hmm. so that well yeah uh, that is that that is the structure i mean the book the book begins with you know the women the women in in the loft essentially uh well it doesn't quite begin with that it begins with the narrator of the book who Happens to be a man. His name is August Epp, and he and I and I chose him to be the narrator of the book for several reasons. One being that he was male, so he would be able to uh, read and write and translate from the Low German of the Plautdietsch, the language of the Mennonites, to English. Uh, so that that made sense in my mind. August. Uh, is from the colony. He's a Mennonite from the colony, but he and his family were excommunicated when he was a boy. They went to England, where he lived, where he studied. But he's a, he's a despairing guy. He, he's suffering. He's suicidal. He's, he's profoundly depressed. Um, things have happened to him in England, and he decides that he will go, rather than um, kill himself, basically, he de- he's decided that he'll go back to, to, to Malachna, uh, you know, to to this colony, and and see, you know, and and teach, and be and be a teacher, which is his profession, and and in the Mennonite community, to be a teacher really is the lowest of the low. If you're not a successful farmer, if you don't know how to farm, then you may as well teach. You know, uh, it's, it's not something that's respected. Uh, education, isn't, you know, that that kind of thing. It's just the boys generally are educated a little bit, you know, minimally, so that they could do business perhaps with the in neighboring communities, with, um, but. August is, is the narrator, but not, and so he comes back, and he's he's always been in love with Ona Friesen, who is one of the women in the loft, and Ona loves August as well, and Ona senses that August is suffering, and when she meets him on a path in the colony, she she says to him, "Hey, uh, August, why don't why don't you take the minutes?" Or that she doesn't. Put it that way. Obviously, she wouldn't know what minutes are. Why don't you take the, you know, write, why don't you write down the things that we say in our meetings? Um, he, she knows that he can write. That he's a teacher. That he might enjoy the act of writing. Um, and she does it as a, as an act of compassion, really. Saying, you know, maybe while you're doing this, uh, at least, you know, you won't, you won't, you won't kill yourself during that, during that time. I'll give you this task, and and you can be with us. Come with us. Be with us in the loft be with us women and so he accepts this job of course because it's ona asking him and he loves her and he's willing to do it but august also represents kind of all men in in a sense you know that that he's there representing all men listening you know finally uh to these women (laughs) talking about their lives their experiences what they're going to do and and taking notes and um and and so you know i like that and and um but he's also a, a kind of guy who kind of exists between worlds in mm. this sort of, you know, kind of liminal space, really, between the outside world and the colony, the stifling you know, closed colony colony itself.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask about August next, because, you know, you've explained why he's, he's a man, therefore he is literate but he has, they've been excommunicated the family, mm-hmm. so I guess you could quite easily have made the decision that it was August's mother that came back who mm-hmm. was, mm-hmm. you know, presumably been educated while they were living in England mm-hmm. Um, and yet yeah, it's August August a man but at the same time you say he's there to represent all men but he's a man that none of the other men respect
0: mm-hmm. the, yeah the other men I mean he's considered a half man really not and August uh, when I created the August character I drew on my own father uh, for inspiration again that word if that's the right word but uh, my father was a teacher he was uh, on many uh, different boards in our in our in our Mennonite uh, community and he was always the the minutes taker and that was I mean in in a community like that? Uh, yeah, like. Th- like I said, you know, to not be a farmer, to be, to be somewhat of a, of a, of, a, of an intellectual or to appreciate education or to read and to write, you know, even the fact that my father uh, w- would ride his bicycle around town was considered suspect. You know, what kind of man rides bike? Um, and <laughs> and I mean, the you know, it's not easy. It, it's certainly, you know, girls and women in these communities get, get the, you know, the short end of the stick, that's for sure. But it's not easy for men either. Um, and for these rigid, rigid roles and the rules, you know, these, these, Rules that like, that can that 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 are enforced. So August is is mocked and and, uh, and belittled belittled by by the other men in the colony for sure for not being like the right kind of Mennonite man.
1: Um, just as an aside, how did you leave? How did you get out of that community?
0: I well, when I was eight, it, it, you know, as a kid, I mean, I, I loved. And I've said this many times i I, I had a great childhood you know, and, and I think back to my time in the town and and how and the you know the adventures that I had the love I experienced the joy that you know I was well taken care of i was but as I became a teenager you know as teenagers do I started you know kind of peeling some layers back and and understanding you know some of the 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 culture you know the hypocrisy of these religious men you know um, laying down these laws enforcing these laws these religious laws apparently and and um, you know uh, and yet they themselves you know were not Um, you know I I would say pure and so there was that and and their sanctimoniousness and and that kind of uh, the damage that that culture was doing with it again with that emphasis on guilt and punishment and and was doing and especially to the girls and the women that I knew and how they had no voice and how they had no uh, control they had no leadership position they had nothing and and, um, there were there were exceptions obviously but you know for the for the most part it, you know became very it became very clear to me that I wouldn't be able to stay in that town uh, if I were to be an individual if I were to be a writer certainly which wasn't really a part of my thinking then but so I did finish um, high school I didn't stick around for my graduation or anything like that I just uh, I got on a train my mother drove me to the city I got on a train to Montreal so I you know came from the most conservative town in the in the country to, to the most liberal, the most cosmopolitan city in the, in the country, Montreal, which was, again, you know, like August. I was certainly between two worlds. Like I, I didn't feel at home in either in either one of them.
1: You mentioned Ona, but introduce her to some of the other women taking part in the discussion from these two families.
0: Mm. Ona's younger sister, Salome, uh, is, is a real firebrand, a real feisty. She's a fighter. She's sort of their kind of uh, leader in a, in a way. And yet she follows the rules just kind of, uh, you know, well enough so that she hasn't been kicked out, that she hasn't been shunned or excommunicated um but still is is filled with rage and would like to kill uh the men responsible for the rapes for the attacks and 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 her own three-year-old daughter uh was one of the victims and um and this of course um you know makes makes her makes her crazed with with rage and heartbreak and and so her and her voice and she's she's a kind of a bossy character, she cares deeply about her family there in the loft, her sisters and, and mother and friends, etc. They're all related, um, but she's also, she annoys the other women, she, she you know bosses them around a bit and, and she needs to be calmed down kind of constantly by Ona, the gentle, her gentle kind of oddball dreamy older sister who has really been written off by the community because she suffers from what they call Narfa, but which is basically a type of mental illness. Um, Perhaps she does. I mean, it's it's unclear. She's just... She's unusual. And so, in that respect, she can kind of get away with a lot as well because she's just dismissed. She's not taken into account.
1: Yeah, it's almost like they don't notice her. Like, yeah. she can pass unnoticed.
0: Yeah, exactly. So she's sort of, you know moves around the colony with it you know her hem that isn't that isn't properly you know the her raggedy dirty the hem of her dress maybe barefoot her hair isn't properly covered the way that you know there's it's supposed to be and um, and, there, and there and there's another and then their mothers there as well and and, and there are two teenage girls uh, the teenage daughter of Salome and um, and also or, or the, the teenage niece actually of Salome. It was her her other sister who, who, who died, who committed suicide after these attacks, and, and Salome is responsible for this girl and another teenage girl and another family, two sisters as well, and uh, and two older women grandmothers.
1: And the two teenage girls are willful. I mean I guess yeah. they would probably be described as wild mm-hmm. by the
0: uh, Right, that would be the word by the <laughs>
1: by the men folk of the of the colony. Yeah. But they're, they're brilliant characters and it's great to sort of watch how they react to the conversations that are going on, you know, the sort of realisation that comes across them that they might be leaving, therefore they might not see, you know, their younger brother again or their, you know, their, their father again.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, the stakes are so high. The choices that these women have to stay or to leave, or to you know to stay and fight or to leave. Uh, um, I mean, all, all of them come with with such dire consequences. And, and you're right. I mean, they're they're leaving. If they were to leave, they they're leaving behind uh, the men that they love. Some of the men that they fear at the same time. Um, and they're and again, you know, they would be related to the to to the rapists, to the attackers, the the, the men who may be returning to the colony if bail is posted successfully. But it's um, you know, the teenage girls are like teenage girls uh, everywhere. Interested in in boys, um, in just kind of ha- hanging out and and. Um in the outside world you know and that that does get into to them um in some in, in some small ways they they can tap into it in small ways the way that teenagers always have been able to regardless of where they are <laughs> they have they have those you know that antenna that they can uh and, and which is beautiful to me and
1: well, there's a brilliant and, scene where they're, they're listening to, surreptitiously to the radio that's been mm-hmm. played by like a a bin lorry or a delivery lorry mm-hmm. or something. It's a
0: census taker. A census oh, yeah. taker has come to count. You know, and, and uh, is attempting to get you know the people to come out of their homes. The women, I guess, the men are gone to to be counted. And he's playing the radio, and I think he's listening to the song California Dreaming. And, mm-hmm. and the girls are you know like intensely, very seriously, you know, listening to this music, and you can tell that you know it's it it has it has an effect on them. They they're mortified when their when their mothers and their grandmothers begin to pray or begin to sing hymns. You know, like teenagers, they they, you know they kind of mumble along uh, with them, but don't really participate in that part of it.
1: (laughs) There's also this idea that what's at stake here is obviously not just they are going to leave and you know take off in the night and and leave these men to their own devices, but you know these women are. Illiterate, they have no real conception of the outside world. They don't have a map. If they had a map, they couldn't read it anyway.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly, and the whole idea of the map. August, August, uh, you know, believes that he can f- get a map for them. And if if he can't find the map, you know, they they discuss the idea of maybe they can create their own map. Uh, you know maybe as they go or at least you know a very kind of basic one with what they do know around the the, you know the the rivers and the fields that are around around the colony and that also was a detail that i heard in one of these pieces about the actual events how one of the teachers um you know a teacher on the colony had said and this is a teacher you know had said oh someday wouldn't it be wonderful to have a world map to know where we are in the world which i thought was um, I was, you know, I was just incredulous that a teacher could be without a, without a a world map. So, so, and this is unknowable space, the women, if they do venture out, you know, they really, they really do not know, really, in a sense, I mean, they would know what country they were in, but, um, but, you know, they certainly wouldn't know what was around and and where they should go.
1: Um, just one thing more from me, and then I'll get you to read a bit of the book, if you throughout your writing career you've revisited the Mennonite community in lots of different ways but beyond subject matter how do you think that upbringing inhabits your writing?
0: Uh, I, that's a, that's a good, it's a good question I mean for the longest time uh, I think I had these sort of embryonic thoughts, of so these unformed thoughts really of wanting to be a writer uh, or, or, or of somehow wanting to express myself in some type of art form. Um, I didn't know what I would write about or, or what I had to say, and it only became evident to me later on. And, and um, I went to journalism school and I, and I wrote a couple of other books that didn't really address that, like or didn't have anything to do with my Mennonite community. It was only after my father died, and he committed suicide in 1998, that I, and, and some of the things that happened around his death, the, the reaction from the townspeople, the, the feelings uh, about suicide within, within the Mennonite religion and, and how that manifested itself in, in the comments that people made, and I began to think about the town and what it was about that town that had sustained my father for so long, but also what had, I think, contributed to his death and to his mental illness. And, and it was from there, you know, that I realized that this is a, this this town is just this, the the culture, you know, the 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 Mennonites. I mean, it's weighed on me. It's you know whether this is like a, a generational effect, something that can be passed down. But, but um, the idea of you know this group of people that separates themselves from the world in order to you know you know the fact that they they, they followed this Anabaptist kind of martyr Menno Simons and that and that his laws as rules still you know ab- abide in so many of, in so many of these communities there are liberal Mennonites for sure um you know like gen- genuinely you know caring compassionate uh tolerant and and open-minded Mennonites absolutely in churches and congregations and again I go to um, I, you know I make an effort to to say that I'm not I'm not critical of the Mennonite faith uh or of the Mennonite people, but of this culture of control and and the damage that that it has done and that I've seen um, and and experienced. And so um, so I think that that's and and when I started thinking about all of that, that's when I, I thought, okay, I think I can best express my the questions that I have, the rage that I have, the 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 the, the, the empathy that I have, the you know the the solidarity that I have in fiction. I'll read from uh, you know the beginning of the book. It's not the the beginning beginning but uh, Paige a little way a little ways in and and, uh, August is uh, describing the beginning of the uh, of their meetings in, in the loft we begin by washing each other's feet this takes time we each wash the feet of the person sitting to our right the foot washing was a suggestion made by Agatha Friesen mother of Ona and Salome Friesen it would be an appropriate symbolic act representing our service to each other she said just as Jesus washed the feet of his disciples at the Last Supper knowing that his hour had come. Four of the eight women are wearing plastic sandals with white socks. Two are wearing sturdy leather shoes, scuffed, and in one case slid open at the side to allow for a growing bunion with white socks, and the other two, the youngest, are wearing torn canvas running shoes, also with white socks. Socks are always worn by the women of Malajna, and it appears to be a rule that the top of the socks must always reach the bottom hem of the dress. The two youngest women, Aucha and Nietzsche, the ones wearing running shoes, have rolled their socks down rebelliously and stylishly into little doughnuts that encircle their ankles. On them, a swatch of bare skin, several inches of skin, is visible between the rolled sock and the dress hem, and insect bites, probably a black fly and chigger, dot the skin. Faint scars from rope burns or from cuts are also visible on the exposed parts of these women. Ocea and Nietzsche, both 16, are having difficulty keeping straight faces during the foot washing, murmuring to each other that it's ticklish and coming close to erupting in giggles when attempting to say, God bless you, to each other in solemn voices as their mothers, aunts and grandmothers have done following each washing.
1: So I've been talking to Miriam Taves, we've been talking about her latest novel, Women Talking, which is out now from Faber. Miriam, thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thank you very much for having me.